This talk was given at the North Carolina Zen Center. Our program is made possible with the support of our members and friends. If you'd like to make a donation or become a member, please visit us at www.nczencenter.org. We have found that one can aid their own understanding of a Dharma talk, or Taisho, if you sit in meditation beforehand, and we encourage you in this practice. Well, um, you know, we were talking about, Teshin and I were talking about delivering talks, and, you know, I, I'm a big fan of Teshin's Teisho's, his Dharma talks. Um, I've given fewer than him, um, but I'm really enjoying the opportunity to present, offer some words to you. And in the spirit of the season, this one is called Tasting the Feast. So last Sunday, um, I understand you had a gratitude ceremony here. Um, it's just such a beautiful offering. Many of us practice gratitude daily, right? Um, both formally and informally. Some do gratitude journaling. Some make sure to mindfully and authentically say thank you to the people in our lives, whether it's a family, loved ones, or the uh, post postal person, or our um, clerk at the grocery store, teachers, coworkers. Some say an acknowledgement, an acknowledgement of interconnection and appreciation, like the five remembrances. You know, gokan noge people do here before a meal. According to one of my first uh, teachers, Fred Epsteiner of the Florida Community of Mindfulness, he says, cultivating the mind of gratitude is one of the most wholesome mind states that all of us can practice very readily. And it counteracts the mind of dissatisfaction. Before koans, I learned a, a practice called lojong. Anybody familiar with lojong? The Tibetan practice, they've been somewhat correlated to koans, although they're a different animal. They're loosely corresponded to koans. Um, it's a mind training practice that was developed uh, between 900 and 1200 CE as part of our Mahayana school of Buddhism in the Tibetan tra tradition. And there are lots of different little slogans that you sit with, similar to what we do with koans. <clears throat> and they're meant to cultivate this, this boundless compassion, this mind of compassion. And one of them is very direct. It simply says, be grateful to everyone and everything. And then I can hear my own teacher adding, Valerie Forstman Roshi adding, unconditionally or without opposite. Yeah. One of our, also our mutual teachers, Teshin and I, Henry Shukman Roshi, the spiritual director at Mountain Cloud Zen Center, he offers the practice of allowing everything unconditionally same kind of idea because then the gratitude just sort of naturally upwells as we sit with allowing especially leaning into the hindrances you know our five hindrances desire ill will sloth worry and doubt no one knows anything about those right <laughs> well, with this allowing comes a softening and a freedom for all functioning of this existence to operate exactly as it is, the good, the bad, and the downright awful. Once we open our tight grip 
of wanting things to be other than they actually are. It's like a koan that we study, with empty hands I take the plow. Or some may know the book, Opening the Hand of Thought. Hard to do, but that's our practice. Across different faiths and traditions, the moment before mealtime is a time for contemplation, introspection, and giving thanks. Take Passover, in which a ceremonial, ceremonial meal is interspersed with story, prayer, mindful eating, and repeated thanks for freedom from bondage and continued sustenance. Or Thanksgiving, during which we traditionally offer thanks for the bounty of the earth and the supportive guidance of our fellow humans. For example, the Native American Wapanoag tribe, when the weary persecuted pilgrims arrived hungry and homeless on the beautiful Massachusetts shoreline. Setting aside for the moment the fact that the colonists then persecuted their very hosts, even while escaping persecution themselves. But it might be worthwhile to note that when that happened, as in many other examples throughout our history, the cycle of human suffering continued as the oppressed became the oppressor, simply transferring their suffering as justification to continue the cycle of us versus them, the ultimate expression of duality in our divided world that continues today. Yamada Kohen Roshi spoke of this topsy-turvy world. So he actually spoke of it, I've heard this term in our lineage, two ways. This topsy-turvy dualistic world, right? That just makes things just, just troubled. And then the topsy-turvy essential world, where an elephant, we can ride upside down in an elephant while chasing a giraffe. But in the first example, the phenomenal world, notions of right and wrong are deeply embedded in us. And our actions in the world are a reflection of our mission to support our notions of right and suppress and eradicate everything we are convinced is wrong. See this in small examples and much larger ones. Even as the new settlers sat to feast with their new world hosts, Tasting this scrumptious new delicacy called maize or corn, they were certainly assessing, judging, strategizing, planning in the name of probably their country, their religion, rationalizations, and beliefs. I wonder, at the moment that they sat down with the bounty of welcoming hosts and abundant food, if they could really taste the boundless all-encompassing sweetness of the corn that contained everything. Or, as Dogen put it, could they really see the deep blue color of the limitless sky in this promising new land? Were they able to set aside their prejudgments and fears to open up to the true and infinite bounty of not knowing? Secho, who was the compiler of the Blue Cliff Record, says that we live and die as one functioning. Sometimes we call it the great functioning. In other words, manifesting everywhere 
as each and every one of us. As each of us clearly seeing one thing exactly as it is, it just swallows us up. This I, me, my, you know, this, this individuated self, if that's a word, swallows us up whole. In terms of the pilgrims and their own fear of how to live and not die in the new world, they held tight, holding on again, you know, to that concept that it was them against the world, not part of it. If only they did Zazen. Or could even tap into other contemplative traditions. 18th century Zen master Hakuin wrote, if you forget yourself, then you become the whole universe. Or many of us know Dogen's most famous lines, right? To study the way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. And then to forget the self, you become actualized by the 10,000 myriad things. The whole world just comes rushing in. In the quantum school of Zen, uh, Master Sun 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 Sun, he calls this so perfect for our theme today, the strong taste of nothing. <laughs> the homemade cranberry sauce, the tofurkey, the sweet, crisp corn, the one body, the one luminous essence and luminous existence, so bright and so flavorful that there can be no division, no side to take, no us versus them, no one tasting anything. Or to put it another way, oneself tasting nothing at all. What a feast. So in the tradition of giving a talk and, and our shared sister lineages, um, I'll present a koan now. And uh, hopefully it'll help illuminate our own intrinsic ability to taste this feast. And how in doing so we can abide by our bodhisattva vows to help save all beings and thus alleviate suffering in the world. So I'll present to you, do we always say this one of my favorites? <laughs> <laughs> but it says truly is one of my favorites, case 60 in the book of equanimity called Tetsuma the Cow. It happens to be also one of the very few koans in which a um, woman, um, a female Zen master is presented. You know, there, are, there are women throughout our koan curriculum, but they're usually very wise old ladies who are nameless at a food stand or something like that. This time we actually have a named Zen master, Tetsuma, Ryu Tetsuma. And she's with her teacher, Zen master Isan, and is now a recognized master herself. So here's the koan, here's the case. Ryu Tetsuma came to Isan. Isan said, Old cow, which is a respectful term, by the way. Old cow, you have come. Tatsuma said, tomorrow there will be a great feast at Mount Tai. Will you go there, master? 
Yisan lay down and stretched himself out, kind of like we do after we eat a big meal. And Tetsuma just left. She left immediately. So first, a little bit of context. Um, as you know, for most koans, this one was set in ninth century China. And Mount Tai, the location um, for the big feast that she referred to, is actually 800 miles away from the location where they're having this exchange. So to even ask a question like this sounds nonsensical, right, to the practical mind. Of course, Isan's not going. Even if he left on horseback immediately, he would never make it in time. But allow me to offer a quick reminder about koans. Even as our discursive and conditioned minds are, um, you know, trying to figure out how could this possibly work. Figuring out this riddle in our own habitual way. Koans are actually meant to help us cultivate seeing into and from. I mean, after all, there's no difference between seeing into and seeing from Buddha nature. Ultimately, the disciplined and steady cultivation that we practice through Zazen and koan examination allows us to experience the fact that there's no separation between this worldly view and, you know, like the 800 mile away puzzle <laughs> and the essential our boundless, empty, infinite, timeless, spaceless, and infinitely fertile nature. This koan points directly to that fact, to the fact. This is our true reality, and it's as available to us as the Thanksgiving feast, for example, that's 800 miles away in Jamestown in 1621 or 5,000 miles away in Mount Tai, China. It's as close as our own tasting tongue. When Tetsuma invites Isan to the feast, he's already there. The abundance is immediate. He stretches out, you know, in that languid way we unbuckle our belt and allow ourselves to rest and digest. So she leaves already gone, no feast, no one to feast, nowhere to go. And yet the abundance, the bounty, it's palpable with enough to sustain every single being in the universe. No one lacking, no one left out, no one to oppose, no one at all. Just one bounty and the infinite gratitude that flows from its coffers. My root teacher, Valerie Forsman Roshi, calls our Zen practice, this is where I got the inspiration, she calls our Zen practice the opportunity to taste the feast. It's like our abbot, our abbot of our Sambo Zen school, Yamada Ryon Roshi, he invites us, he says, the point of Zazen, or the point of Zen, is to let a stick be a stick. Glass of water, be a glass of water. Imagine the corn being corn. 
The taste contains the whole universe. Just one bite. Everything. In a recent talk by Valerie, uh, she presented a scene from the Vimalakirti Sutra, some of us are familiar with. Um, it's a wonderful, beautiful sutra, and there's quite a story to it, but I'm going to focus in on one scene that she brought to light. Um, there was one fragrant leftover bowl of rice from, um, from the Buddha's uh, meal, just one. And um, it happened to be enough to feed 9 million people. With the amount of rice never being exhausted. It's um, been referred to as the bowl of mercy. Valerie asks us, how can we taste of this single bowl of rice and be sated in a way that the whole world is sated? There's our, there's our zazen right there. There's our practice. How do we do our Zen practice to realize this tasting? There it is, but how do we do it? So Dogen presented a, a hyphen between these two words. You might have heard this before, practice and realization. Practice realization, right? Not one, not two words, not two. That hyphen is his pointer to us that we are already fully satiated, fully realized, already fully engaged in this feast through which our sense portals can engage, eye, ear, nose, body, tongue, mind. So we don't have to attain anything at all. Our very sitting is it. Our very questioning of how do we realize this sometimes called our doubt, is also it. It contains everything. This is not a conceptual idea. I'm start to really think about, you know, what does that mean? It's, it's not about that. It's the fact that we're deliciously and unconditionally invited to discover on our cushion exactly as we are. Each experience, like sitting here with you today for the first time, hopefully first of many, <laughs> is ever new, ever beginning, each moment of our life, just as it is, is unique and unrepeatable and a new invitation to the repast to the feast, to dine, so to speak. Dogen has a lot of pointers. <laughs> I'm, I'm always studying the Shobogenzo and um, there's always just new insight to be revealed. He has something called the Bodhisattvas of Four Methods of Guidance. And um, the first pointer is particularly apt to tasting this feast because it's all about giving. It actually says, when you leave the way to the way, let the stick be the stick, you attain the way. When treasure is left just as treasure, treasure becomes giving. So it's a giving that, and I'm just a little postscript, 
giving it naturally when we sit, you know, with this, just relaxing into this, nothing to figure out. Gratitude just naturally upwells. And with gratitude comes offering, comes giving. Off script, I, I'll just mention that this world of Zen, this from, from the moment, from the first time sitting on the cushion, I don't know about you, but I, I imagine it's similar because we all keep coming back. We're, we're sitting in with, as compassion. We're sustained. There's nothing like it. <laughs> and yet, it is it. So if you practice this giving to yourself, which we're doing when we sit, how much more so to your parents, partner, children, and beyond, you give yourself to yourself and others to others. All one. So beautiful. Zazen has been described as silently not influencing anything. Amazing, because it's transforming the world, right? Everything maintaining. But Valerie reminds us that this is saving work. Make no doubt about it, she says. This is saving work that we offer to the whole world. So, in conclusion, I, I, I came, came to mind I, I, before Zen, before yoga, before everything, um, I used to love and still do uh, a character called Auntie Mae. Anybody familiar with Auntie Mae? Rosalind Russell. It's a 1955 movie you can, you can see on Netflix. It's amazing. Um, and I was always drawn to Auntie Mae. And, and looking back, I watched the movie again over Thanksgiving. It had been many, many years. She has a sort of a famous quote. She says, life is a banquet and most poor souls, poor suckers, she says, are starving to death. Live! 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 <laughs> what an invitation. <laughs> of course, she wasn't directly speaking about the ones who were starving because they had no food or basic needs, who were incapacitated or oppressed by anyone other than their own self-inflicted concepts. Here we are, you know, food and shelter in the rain, in the winter. Are we enjoying the banquet? Are we starving? But think about it. Most of the poverty, corruption, and war that leaves people literally starving and dying. The very thing that our pilgrims in the beginning were so desperately afraid of. Really trace it. It's a direct effect of these self-erected barriers to the universal feast available all around us. If only we could just taste it. So let's taste the feast. We can lean into our fear of the fleeting, the unknown, the impermanent, the possibility that it may all be gone tomorrow. Well, because it will be, and we will be, but that's only because tomorrow doesn't exist, nor do we 
again, in opposition to anything else. Only now does. Now. And it's infinite, boundless, abundant, and deliciously beyond any product of our conceptual imagination. I feel like I've just shared a Thanksgiving feast with you. Today, it continues as we continue our practice, our shared practice together. Thank you for this opportunity to share some words and to taste the feast.